Greetings, friends. My name is Justin McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome to Blueprints, Chris. Introduce yourself to the audience. Hey, y'all. I'm uh, Chris Rapsroop. I'm with Justice for Market Workers. I've been, uh, I guess, organizing and an activist in farm worker issues for close over 20 years now. Wow. What is Justice for Migrant Workers? Tell us a little bit more about the organization. Well, Justice for Justicia for Migrant Workers, uh, we began uh, we began about 20 years ago. I used to work for the United Farm Workers of America, the UFW, and I also did some time at the Canadian Labour Congress. A couple of things that happened, right? So the UFW is pretty uh, historic and is pretty, uh, you know, it's, it's it's deeped and sort of steeped, I should say, in uh, U.S. labour mythology. And they had an office here in Canada, uh, but the office and the operations of the American Union was predominantly for for what's happening in the U.S. and not for uh, what's happening in rural Canada. And in 2001, I believe, which I can't believe I'm saying, it's so scary to say, it's like 22, 22 three, years 20, ago, 23 goddamn years ago. Anyways, mm. there was a group of workers who organized a wildcat strike. Uh, just in case if people don't know what a wildcat strike is, uh, it's when people withhold their labor. It wasn't for anything, um, you know, revolutionary. It was simply around a bloody uh, kitchen and conditions in the kitchen, which led to the workers organizing this wildcat strike. And um, as a result of the wildcat strike, the workers were sent home, repatriated is the term, the nice sanitized word that they use, repatriation. And at that point, when I was at the UFW, we organized a series of delegations to uh, Leamington, Ontario, where this action had taken place, to, as a fact-finding to find out what's more go- what was going on. Uh, the UFW shut down at that point in time, operations in Canada, and the CLC uh, took over the Global Justice Caravan Project, and the United Food and Commercial Workers, who were undertaking legal challenges at that point in time, um, also became uh, more interested in doing work around the uh, Season Agriculture Worker Program. So it's been a long haul. Things, of course, didn't uh, end up rosy with us, many of us in labor. So we started um, our own organization, Justicia Justice for Market Workers, about 22 years ago, 21 years ago. And it's an all-volunteer activist collective. It was a few of us rowdy types in Toronto that started it, uh, predominantly uh, both students and racialized workers. Uh, as time moved on, we uh, became more incorporated with more former farm workers, who were uh, have become uh, members and also farm workers and migrant workers uh, across Ontario predominantly, but also people across Canada um, are involved with Justicia one way or the other. You know, my ears perked up a little bit when you talked about a separation from labor there. Were you having difficulty getting migrant rights prioritized, uh, you know, over collective bargaining issues? No, I think I think it's important for us to, you know, a lot of times when we left, um, you know, the, the traditional labor, uh, a lot of times, and you know, you see this in a lot of the academic literature. But you also talk to all the old heads, all the old act- activists. You know, a lot of times people always put this as a turf issue, right? These like, you know, shit disturber activists uh, just can't get along with the union, um, and that's always a way that it's 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 positioned. But I think it's a larger systemic issue, um, and the way that a lot of labor, traditional labor, has looked at 
activist organizations, and particularly the demands or the ways of, of organizing that that uh, that is undertaken. Uh, so I think a lot of the tensions came around through through um, analysis, through frameworks, through trying to think through organizing. For example, it played out, and I'm sure peeps here know about unemployment insurance or EI. Um, traditionally, some segments of the labor union had uh, tried to look at the idea of uh, migrant workers, if they're not getting benefits of paying pay to the EI system, they sh- shouldn't pay, right? And a lot of progressives back in the day bought into that, said that it seems fair that if a group of people are being discriminated of, uh, discriminated against, then they shouldn't just pay into the system. Our position was very different. We're saying that, look, if workers are transnational, then workers uh, should have the access to benefits, for example, when they're returning back to their home country. So not trying to cut off, but trying to expand um, entitlements uh, to think beyond borders, right? So those traditional uh, tensions were happening. Uh, Our focus was also trying to engage in multiracial organizing. And we saw that um, in hindsight, when we started, you know, and and to be frankly honest, when we started 20 years, something years ago, we learned on the ground, right? We didn't know uh, all the theories and everything else behind the emergence of the SOP program, the Season Agricultural Worker Program, which is Canada's longstanding TFW program. It was learning as we organized and learning as activists, um, both from what we saw on the ground, but also what, um, you know, history informs us and also what the academic literature at that time had also uh, also discussed. My longstanding thing and why I'm saying all this kind of jumble, academic jumble, is the history of racial divisions and the history of the way that uh, different segments of the working class have been used against each other. And we were uh, well aware that any type of project that was going to be undertaken needed to be multiracial and to try to strive to organize both Mexican workers and Caribbean workers at that time. But now, um, as... as um, one comrade said, right now what employers have is they have the ability to pick and choose not only workers from the Mexico and the Caribbean, but workers from anywhere across the world to work in the fields of, of Ontario, for example. So thinking about a multiracial analysis, uh, trying to stretch what the analysis was uh, around entitlements, benefits, what organizing may look like, and thinking beyond the, the shop floor, right, to think about um something different about about this. And uh, this is where history, of course, through indentured labor uh, really informs the way that many of us look at uh, the, the way that SOP or the TFW program programs operate today. Let's talk about that organizing, because this is not your typical workplace. You've already given us examples of reprisals. We, if folks heard our last rabble rant where we went on about temporary foreign worker exploitation, they'll know that it's very common to see workers repatriated or otherwise punished. They don't really fall under many of the labor laws that we experience, and they're new to the country, relatively far from home, in a really exploitive position. I imagine organizing those workers looks a little bit different than your average workplace. How do you do that safely? Excellent question. All right, so let me just get back to what those restrictions are. Uh, if peeps don't know, particularly the Season Agricultural Worker Program, the Low Skilled Agricultural Program pilot project as well, workers are tied to an employer. They do not have labor and social mobility. There is no access to permanent residency, and they must return at the end of the season or the end of their contract. Uh, for SOP workers, it's up to eight months a year. For the uh, low skilled stream, it is um, up to two years, right, of working in, in Canada. So there is, uh, first of all, uh, immigration restrictions. Where you're tied to one employer, no labor and social mobility, the constant threat of being uh, disbarred and constant threat of being no longer able to work in Canada, coupled with um, agricultural laws or labor laws in Ontario, where it's illegal to form a union. 
agricultural workers are exempt from most provisions of the Employment Standards Act, uh, most provisions of the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Let me just actually say that again. There's no industry-specific regulations under the Health and Safety Act. And the workers' compensation system also discriminates against workers through practices such as deeming. So it's it's uh, many of us would consider that the, you know, this is not uh, just people falling through the cracks. The program has been designed this particular way uh, to disempower, disenfranchise a group of people. And um, it uh, it basically prospers and thrives uh, through these um, immigration restrictions through tied work permits and uh, through these multiple myriad exclusions of provincial labor laws. So it operates in a gray zone. And, you know, the shock and awe that people love to watch and see is the housing conditions. Uh, and of course, I'm being facetious when we talk about that. They're like, oh, my God, well, why is this happening? I can't believe this, this is Canada. Oh, my God. And then you got the federal and provincial government pointing their middle fingers at each other. And the housing situation... Uh, uh, it typifies, right? It's this is this is symbolizes what is wrong with its with the SOP program. It's where nobody has any real jurisdiction and there's no accountability. And COVID just basically um, showed why migrant housing is a recipe for disaster and why people are living in such shitty conditions. Even if conditions were not good because they're uh, so congregated, the fact that, that there's no protections under the Residential Tenancy Act or the health and safety laws, um, it's very different living in a bunkhouse as opposed to, and I'm sorry for using the, the, the comparison, but if you're working the tar sands, right, and the situations there that those workers are facing are very different, right? Um, you know, this comparativeness of, of a seasonal workforce or a temporary labor force that have to live together. Very, very different conditions and protections are provided between both both uh, both aspects. Now, having said that, you know, I think a lot of times people be like, well, you know, how do you organize and why do you why do you even bother? Mm -hmm. Why don't you just call for the abolition of people? And uh, just I just want to clarify what what do they mean? You mean just we should not use temporary? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, people are just like, you know, just abolish the program um, and forget that, uh, you know, forget it or that it's just too difficult. Mm -hmm. So screw this. And um, it's not just coming from the uh, the reactionaries, right? There's a lot of progressives who struggle with this, right? And they think about, um, you know, and this is where nation and border states, nation states and borders come into this conversation. Uh, people... Uh, seem to forget or they erase that, you know, this global relationship or this imperialist relationship between global north and global south and what leads people to come to come to Canada. It's just not that people are choosing this mythical Canadian-American dream, but there's, you know, these larger economic, social, political and colonial factors that are pushing people to come to Canada. Um, so that if you just simply abolish this program, uh, you know, People ain't going to have no jobs, right, as a result of these other economic and political factors that people seem to forget about. Or the relationship between good pensions and the fact that our pensions are investing in the economic destruction of people in the global south, right, through mining, uh, industrial agriculture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this larger conversation that, that um, it, it's very... You know, there's many spaces to have these conversations with workers, right? And I think this is what's one of the beautiful parts about this, um, about this type of work and organizing. And, and you know, even though it's shot a lot of times in secrecy, uh, there's the, the spaces where we are able to bring forth these conversations to talk about global imperialism, uh, colonialism, and why people are coming to Canada. Now, I'm going to park that for a little second and talk a bit how does this happen. Um, most times, and, and you know, you... you uh, 
you approach people from the first couple of times, they're going to be scared shitless of you. They're not going to talk to you, right? So they've got to see trust. They've got to see you coming forward. they got to see what you're going to do for workers um, and not just simply talk the hot talk, right? So, um, you know, over years, talking with workers, building relationships, building trust, trying to deal small, basic uh, material um, outcomes or material benefits that we'll try to address with workers. It's about building trust, right? It's about building these longer-term uh relationships. It's about people seeing you, you know, week after week or every couple of weeks, not thinking that you're just here to research a population or to get something out of it. Upon my reflection, you know, I do a lot of, uh, I guess, media work or TV work and all that type of stuff. At the end of the day, that shit don't matter, right? When you're going with workers, you've got to be straight up. They're, they don't care about any of that type of stuff. And that's like the most beautiful experience. They want to know what you're going to do. They want to have these tough conversations, right? About What's happening? What are the possibilities? So part of Justicia's work is about, you know, showing what options are, trying to think about what solidarity means. And I want to actually just give a caveat here, too. It's not that we're going in and organizing workers, right? We're not going in there and trying to say that we're going to save workers or we know their shit. Like all these wildcat strikes that have happened uh, right from the beginning to now, uh, it's workers who've been undertaking these actions themselves, and I think as allies, we need to figure out what, you know, how do we build and show that support and solidarity after these actions take place? Um, how does it become part of a living memory, not only for the, you know, the general public or for the progressives, but for other workers? And to see about why, you know, in, in this particular case, power, the potency of wildcat strikes are, are what is necessary to move forward, right? So, but part, so part of the work, once again, about building solidarity, building long-term trust, building relationships being upfront about what can and can't be done and then um, trying to develop you know supports during crises right which is always difficult you mentioned emergency supports on your website what do those look like yeah i mean i i sometimes think in emergency supports that would be material needs immediate housing or yeah for every progressive organization i think or radical organization the challenge is how do you make sure that you don't fall into the pitfalls of charity and what I mean by that, it's, you know, finding housing, emergency housing for people, right? Paying for data, right? Internet data, uh, you know, getting food during the, during COVID. You know, it, it, COVID showed the entire world, but people are still going hungry. You know, if people are, are facing uh, immediate immigration needs and if there's a possibility to help um, and, you know, th- that support, if it's available, then try to have that as well, too. But mostly housing, uh, you know, support for rent, uh, food. Uh, getting people out of dangerous conditions. Injured workers, it's a lot more difficult because many of them are back at their home country. So those are the material, immediate material benefits. And then we just try not to think of this as charity, but try to show the systemic. Uh, so many of our comrades, Jessica Ponting, for instance, who also uh, works at IAVGO, which is a workers' compensation legal clinic. When we, you know, if there's a GoFundMe or fundraiser, right, it's about shaming the state or shaming workers' compensation system for its failures to support workers, right? So it's about also with these immediate needs to show the failures of the state as well, too. But yeah, you know, it's one of these things that we all need to reflect on, right, as we're trying to organize, because we we all go through this, right? Uh, particularly people who are, you know, vulnerable communities or marginalized communities when they don't have access to to to, to OW or ODSP or uh, stipends for rent or stipends for food. Um, you know, we've got to figure out other ways of trying to support that when it happens. Uh, and unfortunately, particularly this time of the year, as harvest season approaches, uh, this is the, the, the roughest time. Santiago, did you now that you've come in and collected yourself? I wanted to also mention. Chris teaches everyday politics in food. 
he's a professor. That's <laughs> one of his classes. Because we, we've said on our earlier shows that migrant workers feed cities. And Chris, you mentioned that some people say, you know, just stop the program. And in, in a perfect world, people don't need to leave their homes for eight months out of the year and send money back, right? They do stay and work close to home, 15-minute cities, right? Like that is the outcome, but we know that's not the reality. So you're working with, with what you've got. That is our reality. But can you give us an idea of how much we rely on seasonal workers here in Canada? Like how I know I live in a rural community. I see it with my eyes when I drive by the fields. But urban folks might not have a real grasp. They envision farmers uh, as though they are drawn in children's books, right? White men with straw mm-hmm. hats and working just by themselves and their ch- their kin. That is not what most Ontario farms look like. Really, like, what are these numbers of workers that we're trying to protect? Uh, there's at least fifty to 60,000 TFWs, uh, temporary foreign workers. Um, mostly are, as I said beforehand, we've got two streams of agriculture workers. One is a seasonal agriculture worker program, which um, employs workers from uh, several Caribbean countries and Mexico. The agricultural stream could be anything, any country under the sun. The seasonal agriculture worker is restricted to several commodities, specific commodities. Um, the two-year contract or the low-skilled agricultural project, you know, mushrooms, uh, worm pickers, cannabis workers, year-round productions, chicken catchers, you'd find those that group of people in, in, in that category. Um, I think it's important for us also to, to, you know, just be straight up. Don't believe the hype. Um, our agricultural system isn't to feed Canadians in quotations. Mm-hmm. It's a industrial um, agricultural system that's premised on export production. Canadian uh, greenhouses, for instance, are simply Amazons. They're not, they're, they're Amazon production facilities. They're not these little mom and pop shops. And, you know, um, over the last several decades, we've continued to see a consolidation of, of the industry. And I, I think the most recent thing I saw on CBC um, about two or three months ago, just in Ontario alone, the value of land of uh, Ontario's agricultural industry is about $120 billion. And that's just uh, mushroomed um, over the, the pandemic, right? So it's, you know, tremendously wealthy, tremendously powerful. Uh, most of the, the crops and the commodities that agricultural workers uh, from the Caribbean, Mexico, or the Global South are working on are for export, predominantly for the United States, but also for Asia as well, and, and also Mexico. Um, so, you know, the most poignant um, scene that I remember, if, if audiences remember the, do- the documentary, Stephanie Black's documentary, Life and Debt, about the uh, implications of uh, global economic restructuring in the country of Jamaica, you've got a scene where apples um, are being uh, sold in Jamaica. And I could just only, you know, and just the way that the, the, it's set up, and these are apples from Ontario, and predominantly those are probably apples that were picked by Jamaican workers uh, here in Ontario that are then being sold to people in Jamaica. Uh, so you've got this kind of triangle that's just this kind of really vicious psycho triangle that's happening. I, I don't even know how to react to all of this, to be honest, because it's all just such, like, it's 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 such a web of garbage. Like, every single aspect of this is so horrible. The fact that we're not only exploiting people within our borders, we're also exploiting people outside. Because like you said, uh, we had a guest uh, just yesterday because we were talking about farming. And I think they said that 76% of all food that we eat in Canada, we, we import. 
so the the fact that there's still such a, a misconception about our agriculture the fact that we're bringing people in just to exploit them for in, I, i'm sorry i don't even have a question i'm just i i think it's oh. you know a lot of times what we focus on, and this is how I'm going to actually start my class on Thursday, we, we think of it's our fault, right? We think of just we're ignorant people. But there's millions and millions of dollars in, in, in marketing that's happening to, to promote uh, so-called family farms, to promote this idea of buying local. And so this is part of our national identity. We construct who is seen and who is unseen. Right. And this mythology has been going on for generations. And as more pushback happens uh, by by activist organizations, uh, by, you know, you know, consumer advocates, for example, we're seeing this um, this ability, this attempt to strengthen this mythology. Right. And to erase um, any type of crisis or or, or or attempts to address the failures of, of, uh, of our food system. Right. Or our labor system. So it's very much contested. But it's a lie. It's not our fault. Um, and that's because of this mass propaganda machine that's happening uh, to, to, to try to erase all the violence that exists in our foods. Absolutely. I think the videos that we saw from the Jamaican workers that went viral just probably showed a glimpse, for reasons we all know, racism and, and other factors. We don't see those stories enough. We are not reminded enough just exactly how our food is grown. Our previous guests said, and I guess I'm paraphrasing, but basically it would be near impossible within the structure that we have now in Canada to run a profitable farm ethically. That the the kind of conundrum that farmers are in and the normalization of the temporary foreign workers program and the racism that's built into that program is then carried on through those employers and then experienced by the workers. And so is there a, a farming model? Like, can you point to examples that don't use, I guess, but the solution isn't not to use that labor, but you understand what I'm talking about, the way the farmers are not making any money in the way that it's designed right now, unless you're a huge corporation. So, you know, I, I you know, I don't have any, you know, full answers. And I think I've been uh, trying to learn you know, I'm not going to ever claim, even with the TFW stuff, I'm doing it so long. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm learning as I go along. Um, but I think if we think food is a right, if we do believe that, um, if we believe in, you know, developing a healthy food system, then we have to ask, you know, can can we have a system of food that's uh, based on a capitalist model? I think that's first and foremost the first, you know, challenge that we need to do. And I know, you know, we would get laughed out of both spaces uh, for even saying that. But clearly, in, in our talking with the enemy, we would raise it then. We'll get laughed there. Uh, but then, you know, we have to ask ourselves, is the industrial model uh, what's going to benefit and save us in, in the long run? And I think clearly it's not. I think it's going to be thinking about, you know, how do we develop cooperative models? How do we... Uh, move away from these large agricultural, uh, you know, operations that are hurting people, right, both here and in the global south. And the other part about which, you know, many of us haven't, uh, and we need to talk more about is the relationship between trade, migration, and labor, and the fact that our, you know, trade policies, NAFTA 2.0, um, and, and the role that the industrial agriculture is playing in just trying to um, engaging more dumping and, you know, trying to have this comparative and competitive advantage uh, for Canadian produce, which is also destroying industries and agricultural food production uh, the world over. Most recently, you might have 
son, and you know, I'm still trying to get up to speed on this, but you know, Canada and the United States are trying to take steps to um, attack Mexico's uh, prevention of use the use of GMO products, right? So this is something else to kind of keep on on our uh, on our radar too, as well. So it's very much thinking about how mm. do we develop a new food model, right? That's not based on capitalism. Uh, thinking, you know, David Bacon, who's an amazing activist and, and a journalist in California, was one of the people that introduced me to the concept. But, you know, other people have used it beforehand. The right to move, the right to stay, where people are able to move and come, not being tied to a particular employer, right? So people having the ability to move and to live. And for people have to, having the ability to have a sustainable food system in their own home country and not being, um, you know, dumped on by, you know, North American produce, but also not having um, American and Canadian uh, actors, both um, you know, non-governmental actors, but also uh, corporations, try to influence and monopolize and commodify local food production in the global south. Short of system change, because yeah. I mean, we're all here for that and working towards it in in all the myriad of ways that work and don't work. But there are some more immediate demands yeah. that folks in your position are asking for to help migrant workers right now does that include for you status for all yeah 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 so um status for all part of the reason why that was developed many years ago uh well first and foremost as many of your audience may be aware but um english farm workers when they came to canada didn't have any restrictions on them after world war ii dutch farm workers when they came to canada came as permanent residents i'm sensing a theme yeah polish uh polish war veterans um i think they had a one or two year waiting period it's only when we started um you know having migrant workers from the caribbean jamaica first the rest of the caribbean and mexico afterwards that we went to a tied work permit model and uh, we're saying that if workers you know previous generations could why couldn't we do that now nothing screams slavery to me more than the timing of that mm-hmm. restriction, because I was going to mention earlier, people need to imagine not really being able to quit. You have the worst boss and you that's it. That's your only choice. Even though you've got the skill set to move to the next farm and they even have an opening, it won't matter. And this boss knows that this whole relationship is built around these restrictions. Yeah. So the fact that it was tied to once we had racialized migrant workers coming on the regular, and then we tied them to a piece of land and a very specific person, the the semblance to to the slavery that we regularly acknowledge is uncanny. So I think a lot of us, you know, Cindy Hamamovich, uh, who's a U.S. historian, but actually I think she, she's from Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. She looks at this issue and she calls indentured labor, right? That the, the, the SOP program or guest worker programs as a form of perpetual indentured labor, where workers, you know, in, under the previous indentured natures, indentured uh, labor programs uh, that operate in the Caribbean, for example, workers were able to have freedom after four or five years. Under the current seasonal agricultural worker program, uh, people c- could be working for generations and they would never be able to live here as permanent residents. So it's about trying to think about employers not being able to use uh, temporary foreign worker programs or workers and to pit them against each other through time work permits 
or to continue to uh, simply racially subjugate people as a result of immigration restrictions. Um, and it's also to think about, uh, you know, the, the threat of democracy uh, when many people cannot participate freely in, in, in any form of democracy. And as we have more people coming to Canada as you know, international students under tourist visas and as temporary foreign workers, uh, they cannot contribute uh, either through, any, through most forms of civic engagement. Um, agricultural workers are a perfect example where paternalism is steeped in the entire system uh, from the housing to the labor laws to the immigration laws uh, where the employer, you know, we cannot forget uh, that there's an employer, this is an employer driven program. So a lot of times when people diss us, they're like, you know, can't we all just get everybody together? And, you know, can't we just, you know, talk about, uh, you know, we need a balanced approach for this. Well, the program is not balanced, you know, especially when it's a, when it is uh, employer driven and here to meet the needs of employers, not to build communities. So the permanent status on arrival is critically important, right, to restructure the debate about who is coming to Canada and under what uh, structures or, or how are they coming to Canada. And, you know, definitely we cannot erase the role that race uh, plays into this. And the fact that you had first, you know, predominantly black workers and then brown workers from Global South who've always been treated differently. Um, and this is where the ideas of apartheid uh, come into this, right? This unequalness, this racialized unequalness that exists through our TFW programs. Interesting. Would you call that system apartheid? Yes. Sounds like it. Yep. Absolutely. This is a form of apartheid. Yeah. I I don't think people realize just how few rights there are. I, even I'm I studied political science. I wrote a few papers on the temporary foreign worker program, and Chris has knocked off a few restrictions that I'm not aware of. And all of this makes for the breeding grounds of a really abusive relationship. We're so beyond the point of thinking we can leave it to bosses. There's no worker really that would understand like would would commiserate with that you know they understand that minimum wage is there for a reason because if your boss could pay you less they they would mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that that whole system is built on the premise that the boss will take care of them and we won't really check up on it yeah you know quite often liberal governments will make improvements on systems after enough noise and they're usually anything but, <laughs> right? I use scare quotes for, there is a mechanism in place for workers who are abused, who have a bad employer, but they literally carry around a scarlet letter with them afterwards. Do they not? Possible. But I read that and I laughed as if anyone could not see the problem with that. Basically, you, you walk around with a permit that says you complained about your old boss <laughs> and you need a new job. Would you take me on? And I just can't see now being able to pick from anywhere in the world how any farmer would be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll take you on. Yes. Yeah, so about three years ago, if I'm not mistaken, could be up to four years ago. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Three or four years ago, the, the federal government introduced something called the Vulnerable um, Open Work Permit for workers facing abuses or victimization. Uh, so very much it creates the accept, you know, what I think is important to remember, as I said before, people are indentured to their employer. So it's not an exception about the victimization or abuse, but it's built in fundamentally to the system that exists. So it also requires workers to come forward uh, to, to try to file complaints, which need to have lots of evidence. Um, they need, they're going to need some type of uh, legal support. And un unfortunately, you know, there is an entire industry that's set up to help people now where workers have to pay lots of money to, 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 to get these free vulnerable open work permits. If a worker is successful in getting it, 
Uh, it's only good for up to a year in most cases. And uh, very much after the open permit uh, ends, it's incumbent on the worker to find another closed permit or to try to find some other ways to regularize their status. So um, it's going from unfreedom to limited freedom to unfreedom. And very much it looks at the workers as the exception, right? And look at these workers who are filing for these cases as an exception. Uh, it's downloading the responsibility on the state onto, you know, organizations, activist organizations, non-government organizations. Um, what we're also seeing is that through the implementation of these vulnerable open work permits, absolutely, you know, workers are not going to be able to find work uh, if you've stood up for your against your employer. You know, there is this uh, kind of disbarring, right, uh, of workers. And, you know, antidotally, even before this um, vulnerable open work permit existed. Workers would tell us uh, that there would allegedly their names would be uh, called out, right? And they would not be allowed to find any work in a, in a farming community. Um, and I've heard this from several workers uh, who talked about their experiences prior to the uh, inception of the vulnerable open work permit. Uh, so in June, we had a protest in Windsor uh, targeting their local uh, member of parliament. And we brought many workers um, who had open permits to basically raise concerns about this process, right? And the fact that they're screwed. Uh, they would rather be undocumented afterwards at the end risk of uh, deportation, or ha they have to go into an exploitative um, indentured contract again. So it's, it's really, really kind of mind boggling on one side, but it you know, just perpetuates this racist um, uh, idea that that um, of this community, right, of when they're trying to stand up against injustices. Just a last, I guess, point about this is that we've um, so I'm an activist of justice for migrant workers, and we've also set up um, a legal clinic in partnership with the University of Windsor, and our staff lawyer, who's also a member of Justice for Migrant Workers, Tanita Doma. Uh, she's been doing a lot of this work to champion and push for push a lot of the vulnerable open work permits. So she's been doing phenomenal work of trying to get workers uh, open work permits, but it's also about not just getting the permits, but also um, addressing the failures, but also. Also, at the same time, trying to think about this limited, fucked up system to think about how do we organize with these workers to try to push for changes. So not just thinking about it as a policy or like some type of advocacy, but thinking about it as an organizing opportunity as well. I guess that brings us back to the wildcat strikes that you advocate for. I have trouble with that, right? Because we've seen the workers repatriated. Not that we don't advocate for being disruptive on the show. It's in the yeah. name. But these workers are the most vulnerable that I can imagine at the moment, other than perhaps maybe completely undocumented, but even then I, I, it's not a contest. I imagine they would all be sent home. Like there is nothing that protects them, right? Is And even the act of acting as a union there is is illegal for them, is it not? Yeah, yeah, it's illegal to form unions in Ontario and it's tremendous risks, right? So going back 20 something years ago, um, with the first wildcat that we knew of. But, you know, there's always been wildcats, right? Let me just be clear. People have always been withholding their labor. Uh, it's just 20 years ago when we were involved, we found out about it by accident. Uh, so I think, you know, workers are going to continue to undertake actions when it's the most egregious, egregious actions of their employers uh, or sometimes the most mundane. In this particular case, uh, workers had to live with, with, with sewage and feces, right, because their toilets were being clogged. We also saw the way that the employer was was talking to the workers in these videos as well, too. So, you know, I think a lot of times workers are making these calculated choices themselves uh, about what happens. 
uh, and what they're going to do to stand up for their employers. So I think as allies, uh, you know, it's thinking about when that happens, what can be done? And even if those workers are gone home now, uh, what steps can be done to show solidarity? How do we ensure that they will not be disbarred from the program? But also what's important, you know, and I have to be straight up here, right? This is not like a... <laughs> The workers undertook a lot of the media themselves. They've organized the the actions themselves. Uh, so, you know, and, and they've also been trying to organize, you know, to talk to their political elected officials in their home country as well, too. So workers are not just these empty vessels, right? They're finding ways to navigate uh, and they're trying to find ways to, to address these particular situations. When we're coming in to show support, we have to make sure uh, that we're not adding more fuel to the fire. And going back to what I said beforehand, um, you know, in a situation, if workers are going to be, and we find out beforehand uh, that a wildcat's going to take place, it's about trying to, you know, work through different options with peeps to figure out how best to address A, B, C, and D. You hold workshops, I imagine, to teach workers their rights or if they have any here in Canada or... I want to go back to something you said, which was really interesting about minimum wage. And what was really pointed about the whole, when the, you know, when the liberals, the provincial liberal government here in Ontario introduced minimum wage increases. Uh, and of course, we didn't see the same thing under Ford. But this kind of false consciousness that was happening uh, in different workplaces, these captive audience meetings, and I would put those in air quotes. Um, so where employers, supervisors would be denouncing um, any minimum wage increases, right? And I'm sure we see this in a lot of workplaces uh, where um, it was, uh, you know... You mean to the staff? Yes, yes, right? Not just Gail and Weston in the media. Yes, yes, exactly, to the staff, to right? The so okay. this idea, and, and workers start getting to indoctrinate about this, oh my God, you know, this is actually bad for me, right? This is going to be really bad for me. And then we see employers taking particular tactics of uh, shifting hours, et cetera, et cetera, to, to address this type of stuff. So it's very, very easy to fall into this context false consciousness narrative. Part of the, the so-called workshops that we're underdoing is not just simply about um, looking at know your rights, but trying to understand history, trying to think through analysis. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the film screenings, right? You know, so this film I talked about, Life and Debt, or the struggle of South Asian workers, A Time to Rise. So trying to think and trying to contest and challenge the way that workers are being told or, or how they're positioned, um, you know, trying to also counter whatever the bosses tell them about themselves and getting them to develop their own narratives and analysis about how to address situations. And in many cases, also building confidence, right? So, and I don't mean this in kind of like a rickety-rah, you're so rah, 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 but after this incident happened, in Jamaica, for instance, the workers were being alleged to just mash up the program. What that basically means is that they're just trying to destroy the work, destroy the program for um, other future workers because they did this wildcat strike because they exposed these bad conditions. Because they're stirring the pot. Exactly. And this was a very powerful narrative that was playing out. And the workers all knew this was bullshit, right? And it was just trying to work with them to continue to just, you know, look, they all knew that, no, they're not there they to- They should have come back working class heroes. Yes, Exactly. Right. And other workers should be looking at that, too. So it's even just building with that and, and to reassure them that there's other people who do believe what you just said. They are working class heroes. I want to write them a letter. Yeah. That would be so hard to do that, to find that courage to stand up to your employer in that situation, be sent home and feel that kind of heat. But that's the reality of the working class, you know, consciousness that that we need to build. Okay, so yo, how about this? 
okay, that's a phenomenal idea. Why don't we do this as a first step, right? So we're going to talk about the larger structural, you know, so there's, you know, large actions are going to be happening on status on arrival. We're also looking at some other actions around this particular situation, other uh, workplace injustices. But if peeps want to even just do a letter to those workers, to all the workers who took part in the strike, you know, the audience could send it to both Jessa, Jessa and to Santiago, and then you send it to me, and we'll get it to peeps. I love that because I really do. Uh, it angered us enough to do it on our rant, but you've given us a kind of a different perspective on just what it took to kind of get there. Yeah. And then the repercussions. So absolutely, I would be happy to forward anything I get on to you. And if that bolsters just even a tiny segment of workers uh, who are doing the right thing, uh, it's the least I can do. So tell us about the big events because September is a big month for Status for All. And for those, we didn't really get into it, but Status for All, Status on Arrival is, is full immigration status for people who come to work here. Yeah, so um, it's mostly uh, the Migrant Worker Alliance for Change and the Migrant uh, Rights Network are organizing those actions across Canada. Um, we're going to be doing um, some specific actions in support of uh, Status on Arrival, but also around uh, you know injured migrant workers, right? Workers who are being fired. And to um, look at different actions, uh, pressuring other components of the food chain uh, to have and to show support for these workers as well, too. So definitely people should be supporting um, these actions, but also keep an eye out for some of the work that we're going to be doing, uh, particularly with this one employer, uh, but some other um, cases that are happening. Uh, some people might be aware that we recently won a huge human rights case against the Ontario Provincial Police. I'm not sure if you know about this or no. I'll let you. I, you know, I read it in my digging of you and... We always love to share victories. Santiago yeah. needs one right now. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's kudos to the workers and to Shane Martinez, who was a lawyer in that uh, in that case. Uh, Ten years ago, there was a racial profiling incident after a woman was violently sexually assaulted. Uh, a general description was given. Uh, the Ontario Provincial Police um, did a, a DNA sweep where it didn't matter what anybody looked like. They took their DNA. They lied to the workers that they would destroy their DNA samples, which they never did. Uh, first, uh, working and, and you know, we thought about uh, a, the OIPRD, the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, to, to examine systemic issues. Um, and then a human rights case was filed uh, for 54 workers. Uh, the 54, the, the HRTO decision came back about a year ago and showed that the province and the OPP racially discriminated against these workers. And they preyed on their vulnerable status because they're tied to an employer. Uh, it also talked about who defines a community and migrant workers are never seen as part of their communities, right? As they're basically seen as extensions of the employer's property. There was a settlement because there was supposed to be a second part of the systemic case uh, where, you know, first time in Canadian history, uh, DNA was destroyed. This DNA samples were kept at the Center for Forensic Science here in Toronto. When we started this thing, they said that that would never happen. We'd never be able to destroy any DNA samples. It did. But that was your goal, right? Yeah, like, right from the beginning. This is not a covering up of evidence. Yeah. Yes. You demand... Yeah. The workers demanded the workers, that their yeah. DNA not be stored after all of this. This was their main baby, right? They wanted their damn DNA destroyed. That happened, right? Not just for the 54, but for all 96 workers. Uh, there's a class action lawsuit happening for maybe seven to 12,000 other people. They found out that that's how many people's um, DNA samples are being kept in this database. Yeah, so I think the other thing is that, you know, the way particularly in our... And it's always happened, but right now there's this more kind of liberal, nuanced, racist... 
uh, xenophobia that's happening around housing, for instance, right? And say we've got too many immigrants. We have too many international students. Even from so-called progressives, I have seen the anti-immigration argument centered on housing. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's been more than, and we can talk about that another time. But the idea about this <laughs> organizing love- is is to show that you know the, the most vulnerable population here, these workers fought for and they won. But the the significance of the victory doesn't just simply benefit them, but benefit wide segments of our society. Um, so that's been also part of the organizing as well too, looking at particular material benefits, addressing the, the the unique situation of these workers and this community, but also thinking about what are the widespread ways. Uh, could be beneficial for us as as working class people. It's always good to win a case against the cops. Yeah, too. totally. Victories are so important. And even you talk about the movie nights and at, at first it kind of sounds superficial. But for those who listen to our tenant union organizing blueprints of a rent strike, it's a very similar model, right? Make contact, find common ground, but then also be shown victories. There needs to be that courage instilled sometimes it doesn't just come from within the, mm-hmm. the barriers that they face are too deep but like you know sometimes simple things like that really do fuel the necessary fire as well as victories in court which are very hard one to get a yeah. court to ad- acknowledge racial profiling or that racism exists what would a grand victory look like for justice for migrant workers would if you got status for all status on arrival would that be enough no no i think this is always ongoing and i guess uh my reflection is if we win one there's always one step forward two steps back so i think it's when we win how do we prepare ourselves for when the two steps back happen happen i think it's got to be um you know there's got to be the ability to move and stay access to benefits and entitlements such as EI or, or workers' comp or, or pension, sorry, EI or pensions at the federal level, um, provincial uh, entitlements such as workers' compensation through the WSIB system. Um, but it's also sectoral organizing, right? So thinking not just of organizing a union at one specific employer, but something that's sectoral and transnational as well too. Uh, so I think it's very much about transformation. And I think that's always going to be... Uh, that's kind of this larger vision, right? About how do we change our food system? How do we change working conditions? And how do we ensure that workers, you know, go home? Uh, they work in decent conditions, but they go home to their families uh, at the end of the seasons. Would status for all essentially open up the door to say more safely do more of that work? I imagine if they had landed status, they would then be allowed to unionize or would the same... I think bit by bit. I think it's going to be yeah, it's going to be simultaneous. You know, we have to get away from where the province and the feds are too busy pointing their fingers at each other. And I think a lot of times, you know, unfortunately, we have um, organizing or campaign models where we focus on one goal. In this particular situation, I would encourage people to think outside of that box and to think about organizing uh, simultaneously for provincial and federal changes. And even if they're not, you know, I think a lot of times we want to focus on winnable. We have to be dreamers. I think always dreamers because the far right is dreaming and they're getting what they want. Uh, they're not being pragmatic. They're getting what they want at anything. So we've got to also, I think, even more so, right, be dreaming, being idealistic and thinking about what type of what, what do we want? Right. And not being shy of saying it or doing it. To be honest, I'm a little speechless on this topic. I 
don't even know what to contribute because it's just it's it feels so frustratingly massive like it's like you know food basic thing that we all need to survive and it's every part of it is so wrapped up in this and with just everything else that we talk about on this show it's just it, i don't know right today it's feeling overwhelming not gonna lie I feel you because like this is just like one component of the food chain that we were talking about that the food supply and then but they're human beings. So it it is just so very complex and especially talking about the farming industry last week, like our audience will be last week, but for us it was just yesterday. And so I for somebody so passionate about food insecurity as Santiago is, it is kind of a bit overwhelming. I think, you know, let's look at these wildcats as, as you know, even though the repatriations happened, uh, they were sticking it to the man. They were sticking it to the system. And the way that I always end on this, imagine that this population who could face the ultimate sacrifices of not ever being able to work again are standing up for the right fight. Uh, that should be a call to action for all of us across the food chain and all across, you know, all segments of the working class that there is possibility, right? There, There is, you know, change is happening and change will happen. And, we, you know, it's not naive to say that we win. Uh, it's not being, you know, just simply like kind of this public relations talk about we win all that to know, you know, winning comes from struggle. And I think that's what my last message is. A lot of times things do seem to be horrible and tough, but these small segments of what people are doing should be rallying cries for all of us. And so they shall be. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.